One of the things that uh, was the biggest blessing for me in this uh, school journey I was on was increasing self-awareness. Leaders need to be really aware of who they are, strengths, weaknesses, all those sorts of things. It's not required of leaders that they be strong in every area. They just need to know and understand uh, for sure where their strengths and their weaknesses are. And so lots of exercises of self-awareness. And I think we could actually start this morning with one of those uh, that would be helpful in applying the passage that we're going to be unpacking this morning. And when I first did this exercise a little bit over a year ago or so, it was kind of Shocking, stunning to me, um, and there's a real part of my heart that reacted against it, didn't want to do it, um, thought of it just as really carnal and sinful, but um, once I engaged with it and worked my way through it, it really was ultimately very helpful. And he, So here's the exercise. If, you, um, if money were no object, uh, if time were no object, uh, so you can, if you want to think of it as if you won the lottery or, or whatever, I... I <laughs> The pastor may can't help but say, I hope you don't waste steward's money doing that. But if you were to win the lottery, if you were to suddenly have a windfall, you know what? If that Nigerian prince came through, if that, um, um, or the, uh, what was the latest one I got? I got this guy, he's from France, and apparently I'm, I'm of the lineage of some royalty, and I have all kinds of money. But I, if I just give them my bank account number, then they can transfer the money to me, right? So um, if the money came through for you, where would you live? What would you do? Um, where would you where would you own a home, and where would you locate to? And uh, not just that, not just where you would live, but uh, what would you fill your time doing? What would you what would you invest life in? What would you pour your energy in? What would you pour your gifts, your talents in? Um, where would that be? And and I'm not I'm not going to look for necessarily interactive responses this morning. Um, but if it could be anywhere in the world, what would it look like, and where would it be, and uh, what would you do with your time? Um, on top of that, like what kind of friends would you have? How would you describe the kind of friends and people that you would want in your life, and you'd want to be engaging with on a daily basis, and investing life in 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 just doing what would be before you. So you're not restrained by necessarily time or resources or money or those kinds of things. Now, if you're anything like me, the first time I was kind of led down that exercise, um, I was scared to do it a little bit and felt like it automatically made me carnal and unspiritual Um, because it felt a little bit like, am I not content with what I do have? And the point of the exercise is not ultimately to to judge you spiritually. It's an exercise of self-awareness. And it's an understanding of this reality that there very well may be some carnality mixed in for some folks as they work and think through that. But it also may just very well serve you to understand maybe some of your individuality and the way that God has wired you and the way he's structured you, the way he's framed you, the desires you would have, the longings you would have. And um, when I began to look at some of mine and think through that, it, I, I don't have any desire to just go live off by myself and, and do nothing. Um, I've, I've, I've lived long enough now, at, at almost 50, that I understand like vacation is good, but there's a limit to it. And I want to do things that are profitable. I want to do things that are functional. That, that I, I've lived long enough to recognize that there are, should be healthy rhythms of rest and work, something I'm really bad at, but... But there should be healthy rhythms of those. But nothing 
but just sitting, I don't know, um, with cucumbers on my eyes and a face mask, that's probably hard to imagine Steve doing that, um, you know, at a spa for like weeks on end just doesn't light my fire. Like, I, at, at some point that gets old, right? So, so just understanding what are the things I'd want to do and realize I don't want to be isolated. I want to be surrounded with people, even this, even this ambivert slash introvert. I want people in my life and I want to interact with people. I want to do things that are profitable. Um, I want to do things honestly, if I'm going to be very honest with you, I absolutely want to invest my life towards things of eternal value. But if I'm frank with you, if I could choose... I'd want lots of eternal value, but I'd still want some fruit things here. Like, I'd want to see some progress here on something. I got to see something. And I already know that I kill plants really easy, so it's not going to be a little garden. Like for me, it, it would have to be like probably restoring a car. But, but, but then I realized I'd want to restore the kind of car that has connection to my past. And I'd want to restore something that I could give my kids and, by God's grace, one day, many, many years in the future, <laughs> grandkids. Um, and if they have a dog, fine. Then it'll be a pickup truck and the dog can ride in the back. So, like, but, but I'd want to do that and I'd want to engage with other people that have those joys and delights. And I'd want to be able to travel and see the advance of the church around the globe. And I want to see... I want to see how Christ is building his kingdom, and, and, and I want to be close enough to serve the underprivileged and the underserved and people in need because I, I, I delight in doing that, and I love seeing uh, the, the faces on people and the delight as they grow in Jesus and as they experience good gifts and good love. And so what would yours be? And if you just take it as an exercise in self-awareness and not an exercise in covetousness, you may very well begin to understand a little bit better your individuality and how God has hardwired you. And not to make you dissatisfied with where you're at, but to begin to unravel what do some of those desires represent. And so desires that I would have to be connected to my past and connected to my future, to be in a place where I can serve family and friends, underserved and underprivileged. Well, you start to ask, well, how can I do that right where I'm at now? And you begin using these to push your heart to serve Jesus right where you're at. Does this make sense? This is so critical to understanding worldliness. It's so crucial for you and I to grasp this tight connection between loving God or loving things here. And this incredible command of the one thing we're told not to love is this world. And so how does all that work together? And, and so that's what we want to journey together this morning on and learn a little bit more and maybe dig a little bit deeper. So 1 John chapter 2, I want to remind us again of this passage, and we'll read this uh, at least again this week and next week for sure. Uh, we'll turn a little bit of a corner after next week um, for the last few sermons in this series. 1 John chapter 2, picking up in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want to begin here to connect from last week into this week. I love this quote by Russell Moore in his wonderful book, Tempted and Tried. He says this, when God created humanity, he didn't design us to be blank and passionless. 
There was a mission to undertake, a mission that required certain drives. To live, we must have a drive to eat. To be fruitful and multiply, we must have a drive to copulate. To, in order to subdue the earth, there must be a drive for creativity. That's all perfectly, and I mean literally, perfectly human. God has created us with desires and with drives. And as we've begun learning, as John here is defining uh, the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, and uh, we could have go back to James as we did last week and see how he goes after the same thing. Why are there wars and fights among you? Because of your hedonai, your desires that are in you, and you're warring with each other. You want them met. You, there are things you don't ask for because you know it's not righteous to ask for it. Your desires to be fulfilled. And so the lust of the flesh was seeking to have these desires met in illicit means. They're right desires, but you're going to find a way outside of God's boundaries to meet them. Famously, then, James described that as things like spiritual adultery, such a graphic term for it. But what about lust of the eyes? Well, I think what we can learn this week about wrestling with lust of the eyes and fighting with it is this, that the gifts of God are intended to drive us to love the giver of the gifts even more. Uh, have you ever been at a, <clears throat> at a, a child's birthday party? And you give it, you, you know, it comes time for the children to open their gifts. And they just, they go through it like locusts through Egypt, right? And, and I'm not doing this to condemn children. I, I guarantee I was the same way, right? So, um, and then there's other children. It's like you'll see them and, and they'll open one gift. And it's like a 10-minute interval as they're just overwhelmed by the gift and they keep going back and giving hugs and kisses and they're just so thankful for the and you're like just okay can we cut the box open now right let's get to the good stuff right so there are times in our lives where we've received gifts and all it has done as wonderful as the gift is it just increased this affection for the one who gave us the gift and then there's other times in our lives our heart of affection is so set on the gift it's like we forget the giver of it or we approach it with such a, an air of entitlement and expectation. Well, I deserve that anyway. Of course you did that. That's what you're supposed to do. There is a connection between our individuality, who we are and how God has made us, the things that are wonderful in this world that attract us, and whether those become an end unto themselves or whether they drive us to worship. And uh, I was talking to a friend this week about the sermon, and I said, one of the things that's so hard about this text, this sermon, is helping, because I'm always burdened pastorally to help us apply it. There's such an individualized component to this that unless you, you do your hard work, you will easily walk away from the text this morning and be like, oh, okay. And like pastors and preachers never want that. And so I just want to appeal to you right at the start to understand that even when you read this, let the gifts, you need to begin thinking of the gifts God has given me. Personalized and longings. And that's why that exercise at the beginning may be helpful. Let the gifts drive us to love the giver of the gifts even more. The story of creation celebrates the glory of God's creation. We are designed to enjoy God's gifts Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13 says this, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. It is right to enjoy his gifts. One of our temptations and one of the things I think at various times in the church, and so I mean the church at at, at large, 2,000 years, universal church, one of the things the church has often done is there's been different groups, sects, and uh, movements within the church that treat our bodies and our image of God bearing, our imago Dei, as worthless, and our desires as always inherently wrong. And so any downtime is sinful. Um, I, I grew up thinking that, man, if I was reading my G.I. Joe comic book instead of reading the Bible, I was in sin. If, if I didn't pray this amount, I, I was in sin. Um, I, I, I don't know how many, I'm thankful that God is a gracious God, because I don't know how many decisions I made over the years. I'm going to read this much, pray this much, memorize this much. I'm going to do, 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 do. And, and because watching cartoons or reading a book or playing baseball or playing soccer must be evil because I'm wasting my time. That it's wrong to delight in the things of this world at all. That somehow I'm sinful to enjoy God's gifts. Any delight then in things of art, literature, music is wicked. And yet Ecclesiastes is clear that it's not. An overt avoidance of all of these things, these delightful things, as we learned even last week, doesn't solve the problem. You can remove yourself from all of it and still have lust of the flesh. Because your flesh is with you all the time. You and I are chained to this homicidal maniac until we go to glory. Moving to the woods with no TV and no radio doesn't take away. You are still bound to it. There was a method of execution they used to use where they would literally chain a dead body to a person. So they would become infected by the disease and it would slowly kill them. That is a horrific, torturous death. Sometimes as a Christian, that's what it feels like with our flesh, isn't it? Our unredeemed humanity. And so we've already learned that just an overt avoidance and thinking, well, I'm going to run from all of it is no solution at all. In fact, what I would contend with under lust of the eyes is it's a warping of the beautiful things God has given to us. And so by trying to avoid all the beautiful things, we actually are missing out on some of his delightful gifts to us, some of his kindnesses to us. And so it doesn't become a matter of, is it good or bad? It becomes a matter of what we do with it is what makes it good or bad. How we use it makes it, is a gun good or bad? It's neutral. It's what you do with it. Is a car good or bad? It's what you do with it. It's how do we use these kind gifts? And so we have to press in and understand a little bit more. And so let's try to understand the lust of the eyes in a more uh, biblically sound way, exegetical way. And so uh, there's two key places in the Bible we can go to. We go to lots of places, but two key ones that are foundational for us. And the first one is right there in the garden. We, it's the first time we see this remarkable formula of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Now, this is fascinating to us because Eve is morally neutral at this point. She, she is neither good nor evil. Adam and Eve are the only two moral, morally neutral people that have ever existed, ever been created. Everyone after them is out of them and after the sin of them, and so they have the sin of Adam. So Adam and Eve are the only two people ever made without a sin nature. Everybody else has a sin nature. You're conceived, you are birthed, you are born, you live, you have sin, you have the flesh. And so we really define the flesh once you become a believer with your unredeemed humanity. But the lost person is just consumed by the flesh. All They are in their lostness. That's all they are. And so, but Eve isn't. And yet she has this capacity because of her humanity to have this engagement in Genesis chapter 3. And so I think all of us are at least familiar with the story of of she goes and God says, there's this one tree in the garden you may not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only tree, it's in the midst of the garden, you may not eat of its fruit, don't eat of its fruit. If you eat of its fruit, there's going to be consequences, don't do it. Um, and so Eve goes and she has this encounter and in Genesis 3, 6, we have this recorded for us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's easy to pick out the formula here. The lust of the flesh is this hunger desire. The, the desire to eat was not sinful. Uh, it was God created. The pride of life is tied to its personal advancement, the desire to make one Wise. You remember the lie of, of the serpent, of Satan, was that God is somehow afraid and intimidated on some level, and so he's wanting to withhold things from her. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so Eve is second one on the scene already, right? There's already been this whole moment and event, and so she's second on the scene, and here she is, and the serpent is telling her, you eat this food, you can rise at least to be equal with God. And so there is a pride of life moment here. There is ambition. I just want to point out the hunger desire and the ambition desire were not innately sinful. They are humanity. <clears throat> this is why we would recognize that you can warp both of those, and that's what's happening here with her. And so we see lust of the flesh, we see the pride of life, but the lust of the eyes is through its intrinsic aesthetic appeal. The fact that it was beautiful. It was a delight to the eyes. And so in her moral neutrality, in the lack of a sinful flesh as of yet, she had the presence of the physical desire of hunger, she had internal ambition, and she could appreciate what was beautiful. But all of it becomes warped as she now defies God. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't make the fruit look horrible? You ever bitten into an apple and found a rotten spot? <clears throat> it didn't stop you from eating apples, maybe for a time. It's like that time you drank milk and it's like one day passed. That'll punish you. Um, you're off milk for a little while. Why didn't he make it look horrible? It was a delight. It had an intrinsic aesthetic appeal to her. Why not make it pitted and wrinkled? Why not a foul smell and this terrible discharge coming out of it? Why not out of reach from where she could grasp it? Why not swarmed with insects? 
The lust of the eyes for Eve has everything to do with its pleasing appearance. It was utilitarian. It was good for food. It was affirming and self-promoting. It would make her wise, but it was pleasing to her eyes. She looked on it and delighted in it. God had brought Eve to her husband, and he was pleased by her appearance. He delighted and found beautiful the gift of God. She delighted and found beautiful what was awful, and it's from God. It's fascinating that Eve falls here this way and she finds a delight um, with her eyes, the ambition, the, the, the hunger for it. She gives it to her husband who's with her. And the reality is you can actually see all these same sins in Adam's heart as well. The last thing in the world he wants to do is to tell his beautiful wife no. His own heart is being duped by the gift. He is treasuring the gift more than the giver. At the central moment of it, foundationally to each and every one of us individually in this room then, is you've got to understand this. Lust of the eyes happens in something that you find appealing to you. It has value and appeal to you. And so that's in the garden, but the other place we can go is in the temptation of Christ. Temptation of Christ is recorded for us twice in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. Luke follows the for, really nicely for us the formula, less the, less the flesh, less the eyes, the pride of life. Matthew flips the order of the last two just to make his own point in his gospel. What is evident, though, is where the lust of the eyes happens in Satan's temptation of Christ is when he takes him on this high mountain to show him the nations of the world, the, the powerful cities of the world. It's recorded in Matthew this way. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There are two key truths I want you to see here from the temptation of Christ. First, it's the essence of the temptation. What is at the core of it? Why would this even be a temptation? And second, the truth that Christ brings to bear. First, the trappings of the temptation are the glory and the beauty of the kingdoms of the world. It's power and honor and position. It is ambition, the pride of life. It is this internal hunger to want to rule. But it's more than that. It's things that are glorious and beautiful. What would be if you did this today? What would that, what would that moment look like? I've um, I've had the privilege of flying into Seattle and seeing their skyline. I've had the privilege of uh, going into Tokyo and out of Tokyo. I've, got, I've had the privilege of going to New York City, Atlanta. Um, I've had the privilege of going to Hong Kong. I will tell you the nighttime skyline of Hong Kong uh, is, is the most beautiful I've ever seen. When you look across Kowloon Bay, uh, it is just an amazing sight of buildings and skyscrapers and lights and particularly at night you, you don't see any dirt and uh, if you're far enough removed you don't even really hear the sounds of the city it just it looks like a nighttime fireworks show of buildings it's beautiful and it's arguably uh, consistently argued to be one of the most beautiful skylines in the world you know so if you were going to take somebody now and show them maybe you take them to hong kong maybe you take them to la or to new york city and you'd show them the glories you would not take them to the slums of mumbai india you would not take them to the trash heaps of guatemala you would not take them to the leper colonies you would not take them to 
bombed out areas of the, of the world where there's wars and fightings and you would not take them to the frosty denizens of Siberia where it feels like there's no house anywhere. You take them to where it's beautiful and it's glorious. You show them that which is appealing. Satan wants to show Jesus what is appealing, what is intrinsically beautiful to him. The lust of the eyes has to do with what is seen as appealing. There are certain things we're all tempted by, and there are certain things that are very individualized to us. By God's grace, I've, I'm, I'm one of those, I've never, I've never, smoking has never appealed to me. Just, just hasn't appealed to me. Somebody had friends offer me cigarettes. I, um, I just, just didn't appeal to me. I don't, I don't judge it. It just doesn't appeal to me. There's other things that really appeal to me. We all have things that we find beautiful and attractive. Uh, sin bents that we all have. Individualize what we like, what others don't like. As Jesus is considering becoming the ruler of this world, Satan is wanting to show him all the beautiful things, all the shiny things, all the glorious things, all the wonderful things. There is an intrinsic appeal in lust of the eyes. Second, how does he combat this temptation? It's a worship issue. It's all about worship. You see, Christ is going to receive all the glory and honor and power and position that he deserves one day. It just wasn't on this day. And it wasn't in this manner. But God will make every knee bow. God will make every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Christ will rule over every single kingdom one day. But before the crown, there is the cross. The temptation here is ultimately to escape the suffering for the celebration. It's to seize the gift now. It's to make that what's beautiful mine now. No delay. No, no in God's time frame. Not that which God would have for me. I want it all and I want it now. The whole temptation is to escape suffering on any level, any cost for it, by just grasping it. It's seeking magnification without worship. So the lust of the eyes in the garden shows us that it finds its, its source in something that we will ascribe with value, something that you and I think it is beautiful. What are the things you think are beautiful and attractive and appealing? What are the things that you think are worthy of time and effort and suffering to get? What are the things that grip your heart? And then we see that repeated in the temptation of Christ. It's something of value. The honor and adoration of all humanity? The rulership of all the kingdoms? And surely Jesus would rule in a wonderful way? It's to have it now? The lust of the eyes is the worshiping of the created. The lust of the eyes is the worship of the gift. The lust of the eyes is the worship of the thing. In the end, I want to worship the gift and receive the gift and delight in the gift and set my heart affections on the gift and forget all about the giver. It's an overvaluation of something so that it becomes worship. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They are good gifts. And we can actually make them idols. Close friends, good gifts. We can make them idols. Spouses, 
jobs, achievements. We can take all these good gifts from God and we can put a higher value on them than is intended by making them the object of our worship rather than them driving us back to worship God as the giver of the gifts. The lust of the flesh wins when it seeks to fulfill God-given desires in an illicit way, spiritual adultery. Legitimate desire met in an illegitimate way. That's lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes wins when it overvalues something beautiful and makes it an object of worship. Sometimes my little brother tunes in. <clears throat> I say my little brother. Like one, my younger brothers are both full-grown men with their own families. But um, one of my younger brothers sometimes tunes in. And so I hope he tunes in for this one. Because when he was little, he had a crush on this little girl. And uh, she was a sweet little girl. Uh, but she was growing up in one of those families that she, the family was very, very busy. And so this little girl ran around all the time. And I'm, her hair might have gotten combed once a year, right? And she was, she was we're probably talking five or six. And so, I mean, hair, and so it was very long hair, so it's all over the place. Uh, face was never washed. She had a perpetual um, milk, chocolate milk mustache kind of a thing. And, and she just, she was fun, and she was delightful. She was a tomboy, so she just, this girl was a wreck. She grew up into a beautiful young woman, but she, at five or six, she was a wreck, right? Um, she was like, this girl needs a bath and a bow in her hair somewhere, right? And my younger brother was enthralled with her. Like, I'll never, like, he would, she would walk by, and he was like, and I remember one time I looked at him, and, um, to protect the, the, the identity of the accused. I will not name which of my younger brothers it was. And I looked at him and I was like, we were, we were like, hey, what, do you have a crush on her? And he was like, and I'll never forget when he told me because she was like a little bit across the way. And he's like, she is beautiful. And I looked over and she literally had a lollipop stuck in her hair. Like, <laughs> I looked at my brother and I was like, we might have problems one day. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And um, what, what captures our hearts can be very individualized, very nuanced. You have to understand that about lust of the eyes. It's very nuanced. It's very individualistic. And that takes work. And it's why I think so many sermons or series or preaching on worldliness isn't helpful. Because it takes all the work out of it. There are some things that we would all find beautiful. We would all, I, I dare say everyone in this room has delighted in a beautiful sunrise or sunset. I, I, I would, everybody in this room, would, if you're a coffee drinker, tea drinker, orange juice drinker, Hot tea, cold, I don't care. Everyone in this room, I guarantee at some point is delighted in sitting somewhere, just sipping your favorite beverage and enjoying it. We've all done it. Everybody in this room, like there are things, some things that are universal to all of us, but to understand lust of the eyes, there are some things that are very specific. What is it that draws your heart? 
What is it that draws you away? And, and so it's a way of looking at something and seeing the beauty that God has made. And it can be very much in the eye of the beholder, what you long for. And, and I think what's really, really important about that is if we don't get that specific, and so it's impossible, even a church as small as ours, it's impossible for me to grocery list them. And the risk then is if I just work out of what, what appeals to me, just even for illustrative purposes, it would be easy for some people in their spiritual laziness, quite frankly, to say, well, see, I don't struggle with lusty eyes because I don't, I don't desire any of those things that Steve listed. But we all do. So we all have to do the work. Or we're at great risk. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Lust of the eyes has everything to do with things that we find intrinsically beautiful. And then we are overvaluing it and making it an object of worship. And so then how do we actually fight it then? Well, there are wrong tactics. And, and I think it's actually helpful to see wrong tactics so we can see some right tactics. And so first of all, we can go to this guy and he can be a study in failure. Famously, Achan. It's an incredibly sad story in the Old Testament. They're in the land conquering, and it's recorded for us in Joshua chapter 7. I'll just read this portion, verses 20 through 21. Just before I get there, set up, right? They're told to go in. They're told to conquer. Um, the only thing that's going to be delivered out of Jericho is Rahab. They're told to take everything else out, burn everything else, and give everything back to God. That's, that's the orders. But this happens in Joshua 7, 20 through 21. There's a guy, Achan, who goes in, and he hides away some things, and they finally discover it because God starts punishing the whole nation for what Achan did. Joshua 7, 20 through 21. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Just a couple of things here. Does this match what we've already defined lust of the eyes being? Are they aesthetically pleasing to Achan? Yes. He sees a beautiful garment. He sees the shiny things, the silver and the gold. Does he put a greater value on them than he does on what God has said? Yes, God said, go get all this stuff, bring it back, like basically throw it out here. This is going to become used for worship of God and for, for his delight and to show his glory. And Achan said, no, I want it for me. I've overvalued the gift to the denial of the giver. It has everything to do with what he finds attractive. God said to destroy everything in the city of Jericho except Rahab. Take the silver, gold, and bronze instruments and place them in the tabernacle. He steals the silver and the gold, which were to be for God, and a cloak which was to be destroyed. Now, this prohibition was not always in place in the nation of Israel. When Israel conquered the land, there was frequently they were allowed to take the spoils of war. And that was fine. But in this one, God said no. He gave very specific instructions of how to handle this gift. Why? Clearly, it's not a problem. God didn't have a problem with them owning beautiful things. God didn't have a problem with them ransacking the enemies. Even when they left Egypt, remember, they, they gave them their earrings and their gold and said, get out of here. And they took it. Scripture is not completely clear. Like there's no verse that says, that necessarily says, and God did this because of this. But we can infer the reasons, and it may be it may be that he was demonstrating that the primary reason they were conquering the land was not for self-advancement. 
Now, there's a whole sermon in there about why the church operates. That we are not on mission as God's people to conquer the land for his comfort and personal advancement, but to showcase his glory. And it may have been everything to do with that. It may have been to restore back and to begin the preparations for the future temple building and the riches that were going to be necessary for that and to restore those riches that were done away with when they made the golden calf. Because they remember they make the golden calf, then it gets pounded into dust and they all drink it. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to know, because we're all biology students, if you mingle gold into your food, how's it coming out? You sorting through that to get the gold? No. It's kind of God's way of saying, that's what I think of your golden calf. Don't you love how scripture's graphic? Um, that's what he thinks of my idols. So it may have been to restore this. We're not sure all the reasons why, but we do know, though, is that Achan clearly knew what to do, and he didn't do it because he found it beautiful. The lust of the eyes in this moment was one of those, I want it, and I value sitting there in this tent, and he puts a greater value on this. Now, what's interesting about this is Achan is in the right place, but has the wrong heart. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. He was supposed to be collecting silver and gold. He was supposed to be burning other things. That's what he was supposed to be doing. He was right where he needed to be, but his heart wasn't where it needed to be. Avoidance, avoidance of location did not cure his problem. And he would have been in sinful disobedience had he not gone into the city to help. Gold and silver and the garment are aesthetically pleasing. He finds them attractive. The problem was not the location, what Achan was doing, or the objects themselves. In the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was right there, and it was beautiful. Eve was not outside of the garden. She was in the garden when she's at the tree. The problem is not where Eve was at, her location. Attempting to call something ugly that God has made and is good and beautiful is not the answer, nor is avoidance the answer, because the problem is where? It is in our hearts. It's not about where I go. It's not about who I see. You even have this fascinating moment in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He makes a statement, he says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. He's telling us multiple things there. First of all, he's telling us that adultery is primarily a heart issue, not an action issue. But he's also telling us that there is a difference between recognizing beauty and setting your heart on it. Those are two different things. This is why the pathway that seeks to uglify or hide anything beautiful and think that that will cure lust of the eyes is wrongheaded. Won't work.
because it's primarily a heart problem. Now, I'm well aware that Paul says, make no provision for the flesh that you will fulfill it in the lust thereof. So there's all kinds of good, personalized, individualized guidelines, safety measures, sanctification paths that you and I should choose. But I'm also saying this to you. The lust of the eyes is a you problem. And if I play off of what Christ is saying there, I could even put this graphically. You can put a woman in a burqa and it won't cure your heart, will it? And if that's a good enough statement for fundamentalist Islam, it should be at least as good enough a statement for the wrong-headed views that man's lust problem is the woman's problem. We have to own the reality that lust of the eyes has everything to do with us seeing something beautiful. Cars, toys, things, people, food, kingdoms of the world. Fruit that God had said no to. And we value it greater. We go beyond seeing its beauty to us setting our heart, craving it, wanting it, believing it will satisfy. If I possess that beautiful thing, that will make me happy and fulfilled. John Owen helpfully points to how lust of the eyes works in unleashing our imagination. He says this, I quote, The lust of the eyes is that by which by them is conveyed unto the soul. In other words, you see it and you want it. But he understands that it was beyond just what you could see. There was a man in Texas, death row, for rape and murder, who literally used a plastic spoon to carve his eyeballs out of his head, thinking it would cure his lust of the eyes. Owen helpfully points out that, as it continues, quote, it's not the bodily sense of seeing. It's not that you can physically see. Blindness doesn't cure this. But the fixing of the imagination from that sense on such things that is intended. And this is called the eyes, because thereby things are constantly represented unto the mind and soul, as outward objects are unto the inward sense by the eyes. And oftentimes the outward side of the eyes is the occasion of these imaginations. It's the lust of the eyes because it's the entry point for that thing that we start turning it over in our hearts and our minds and imaginations. What could Achan do with that gold? What would he be able to do with that silver? What could he dress in that garment? Maybe he'd save it one day and it'd be a wedding, glorious wedding garment for his daughter. Maybe it would help pay a dowry. Maybe he could use it and give it to his wife. We don't know. But it wasn't just gold and silver and garment. It's what it represented to him. It's his imagination in that tent, in that moment when he's hiding it, when he's burying it, when he's, when he's cra- scrabbling through the rubble of Jericho and he's discovering it. It's what it meant to him. He sets his heart on, he sees its beauty and his ma- imagination is inflamed. Earrings, necklaces, wealth that no one else has. Maybe he would even tell himself, I would give it as an offering to the Lord. Maybe you've you've had your heart set before and you thought, even at the exercise at the beginning, when I said, if you had a sudden windfall of money, what would you do with it? Maybe you even thought, in a a moment of guilt over, over the consumption of it, you thought, well, I would give this much to the church. 
I'd give this much to St. Jude's. I'd give this much to, to the Red Cross. I'd give this much to the United Way. I'd give this much to these people. I'd give it, because you wanted a little bit of a, of a balanced scale in your heart there with all the consumption your mind was racing to. Certainly Aiken's imagination is inflamed. This is why the question of what would you daydream about having, being, and owning is so helpful for understanding our lust of the eyes. Again, that exercise at the beginning was not intended to bring guilt to you. It was simply a self-awareness. Where is it for you? Achan is standing there looking at this bar of gold, and he likes it. He grows to love it. He grabs it. He hides it to have it as his own. He imagines what he will do with it and how he will use it and how good and wonderful it is for him and how providential it was that he found it. And he justifies his theft and his lying because now he loves this gold more than God. Isn't it funny how we'll even, when we're delighting in a gift and we're beginning to overvalue it, how we'll even throw out some thanks to God and surely God favors me because he brought me this gift for me to delight in and enjoy. These are wrong tactics then. So just avoidance isn't going to fix it. Only setting ugly things in front of your eyes isn't going to fix it. Only wearing plain clothing isn't going to fix it. Only eating horrible food isn't going to fix it. Uh, there's the famous uh, 60s song. I remember the band. I forget the band right now. But the lyric of the song is never make a pretty woman your wife. If you'll be happy for the rest of your life. Is this a solution? Run from anything beautiful or attractive to us? No. So what is effective fighting? Attempting to combat the lust of the eyes by not enjoying beautiful things or avoiding their presence is like trying to stop gluttony by never ever eating again. By stopping lust by being blind. Stopping coveting good clothes by only wearing burlap. It's like Eve trying to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by refusing to eat any fruit in the garden and therefore missing out on the tree of life. Not only does it not work, it makes of no value things that are, are of value, and it robs us of celebrating God. We come to what the real problem is, and it isn't that we live in a world of beautiful things or that we find these things beautiful, but that we don't let these things, these beautiful things, increase in us a worship and passion for God. The avoidance of beautiful things does not help our worship, and in fact can rob us of rightly worshiping. What's the difference with Christ in the wilderness? Satan says, worship me and I'll give you all these glorious things. Jesus says, no, I will worship the Father. Then the Father says that because of the obedience of Christ, he will give him all things. Satan says, make your own food. Jesus says, no, and then God gives him food. The problem wasn't the food or the enjoyment of that food. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says this, now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Listen, so what do these kind of people do? I mean, these are some pretty terrible people just described. Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, to teachings of demons, who are liars who violate their own conscience. These are the kind of things they will teach who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If the answer is not avoidance, the obvious answer is not overloving, then what is the answer? It was actually in the text I just read. It's actually in gratitude. How can this good gift show me the character and kindness of God? How can this good gift make me thankful for God's generosity? We can deal with an idolatrous heart and the lust of the eyes by learning to delight in the giver more than in the gift. Of realizing the gifts that God has given us and all good gifts come from the Father of lights are intended to draw us back in affection to him. Let me give you three ways to do that. First, recognize that God is the creator of beauty. He is the one who has made beauty. The sheer fact that we can even appreciate things aesthetically, we can call, say some things are beautiful and some things are ugly. Um, I'm always amazed. Uh, I, I, think of, I think of girls because I think of going to school with girls and they were like, oh, it's so ugly, it's cute. <laughs> you can roll with that. I'm just going with that thing. It's straight up ugly. Um, but... But how do we have, because God is the author of beautiful things. And over thousands of years, other beautiful things have been created by his image bearers. Did he not make beautiful trees and flowers, scents from those flowers, sunrises and sunsets? Is not the God who made the rose the same God that would intend for us to delight in the beautiful scent of the rose? Is not the God who made the flowering tree the same God who intend for us to delight in the flowering tree? It's why we find such irony and humor in the fact that a Bradford pear is so beautiful from a distance and you get up close and you feel like you're at the rotten fish market. And it's irony. And even that amuses us. The contrast of it. There's a beauty in the, the sunset and the colors. Imagine if we lived in a black and white world. How boring that would be if everything was in grayscale. And yet the irony of that is if you walk into my house in our living room, we have a black and white painting uh, of a scene in Venice that's just beautiful because the black and whiteness of it brings out some of the stark details that make you appreciate it more. God is the author of beautiful things. The taste of good old biscuits and gravy. Yesterday morning, I was finishing up my present. I looked at, I don't know why, I was at this point writing, and I suddenly, oh, my word, here's a, you know what, here's this northern boy, here's a good, I had a hankering. I had a hankering for something. I had a hankering for my grandma's unbelievable buttery, flaky biscuits, some sausage and gravy, and some bacon. Mmm! I looked at my boys, and I said, hey, why don't you boys hop up and make some eggs and bacon? They looked at me like, has he gone crazy? Just the delight of it. A gorgeous dress or a sharp-looking tux. An amazing tune, an intriguing movie, a fabulous book, and a wonderful comic who makes you laugh and delights your heart. Taste, smell, hear, experience the good gifts of God. When you see beautiful, good things, delight and thank God for them and recognize God is the author of them. Satan doesn't know how to create beauty. He only knows how to warp it. 
God is the author of all beautiful things. And so as your heart and as your mind, as your imagination starts to get engaged with what's beautiful, recognize that God is the author of them. Secondarily, learn like Paul to be content. Paul says, be satisfied with your needs being met. Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God tells us to not worry, to trust his care, lean into his provision. Don't let ambition or desire become coveting that robs you of resting in what you have. Contentment, Paul says, is learned. You learn it through blessing. You learn it through deprivation. What are you learning? You're learning that joy is found in God when we don't have, and when we do, the gifts drive us to be grateful to God for them. Learn that none of the beautiful things will ultimately satisfy you. They won't. Enjoy them for what they are and how God intended. But they'll never put your soul at rest. They'll never ultimately make your heart happy. Because they weren't intended to do that. You could eat the best, whatever your favorite meal would be. You could eat the best meal you could ever pick. Eat to your heart's content. And you're going to be hungry again. We, we had life group last week. And so <clears throat> wardens were there and they said that they had had hot pot lunch. They still looked full at four. So I took my 13-year-old to eat hot pot this week. Y'all did not warn me enough. Because the food is good. And it's like all you can eat. And, and, and you, know, you know it's going to be something when they, the waitress says, just so you know, there's a two-hour time limit. I'm like, what? I was like, what kind of place is this? you got to be kidding me. Man, about an hour and 15 minutes in, Aaron and I are looking at each other like, whew, ouch. Um, it was good food, right? Like, it was, it was something else. Guess what? That was like, that was last week. I, I didn't eat anything the rest of the day. As a matter of fact, I didn't eat again until like, I think it was like late afternoon the day after. I didn't eat because I just wasn't hungry. You didn't want anything else. Your body's just processing the abuse you just exacted upon it. But you're going to get hungry again. Whatever your best meal was, you're going to get hungry again. Beauty fades. Things wear out. Houses and cars break down. Vacation spots get hit with hurricanes. God has never, he intended for us to delight in it, but never to find satisfaction in it. Learn contentment. Thirdly, 
steward gifts for God's glory, for enjoyment, and the good of others. Understand the beautiful things that he has given to you are intended for you to delight in them. Yes, they're intended to drive your heart to worship. Yes, they're also intended as a means to love others. Guess what? Suddenly we start seeing the connections. If I can fight my lust of the flesh primarily by loving God and loving others, ironically, guess what I can do with lust of the eyes? Learn to walk in the spirit by delighting in the gift and letting it help me to love God and to love others. Be generous with the gifts that he has given you. Be intentional with the gifts that he has given you. Be thoughtful with the gifts. Be sacrificial with the gifts. Invite others in to delight in the good gifts of God. Over the years, over the years, I was thinking back through my life, by God's, by, by God's kindness and others' generosity. I've been in the mountains. I've been at the beach. I've rode jet skis. I've ridden in Mustangs, 33 Ford Coupes, Corvettes, Jeeps, a Dodge Charger. I've eaten at steakhouses, had some glorious Sioux food. I've drunk some amazing coffees from around the world. I've helped others, and I've been helped by others. All of these have been experiencing God's kind gifts that have increased my delight in him. Consumption is the pathway to idolatry. Stewardship is the roadway to worship. How do we fight lust the eyes? It's by delighting in a beautiful thing for how it drives our heart back to the creator. Where would you go? Where would you live? Who would be your friends and the things you would surround yourself with and the people you would invest in? What are the ways that you, are, you would serve? And these would give you insight into understanding the way you are wired to the beautiful things you delight in. And there are probably some that would be the same for us. But then there are others that would be very individualistic to you. And if you want to apply this, and I would call on you to apply it, I want to encourage you then to ask, how could that beautiful thing, and how are the beautiful things in my life right now, how can they be used to make me glorify God even more and be grateful to him? The gifts of three kids, of a wonderful wife, of family and of friends, the gifts of good health, safety, and security. These are good gifts that have been given from the Father of lights. How can they point my heart to worship? And it starts with gratitude. And it extends through stewardship. Are you stewarding the good gifts of God so they drive your heart to worship? Father.